Welcome back to the Collectability Podcast. This past summer, we had the amazing opportunity of presenting the Meeting Point Exhibition, the world's largest collection of Patek Philippe electronic timing devices. Most of these were quartz, so we had to dive deep into the world of quartz timekeeping. And here at Collectability, this was a new frontier. And in this process of research, we reconnected with some friends from the past, some that know much more about quartz timekeeping than we do. At the forefront, one of the most respected experts in the world of quartz technology and its historical importance, no other than Carlene Stevens from the Smithsonian. I'd like to offer a quick bio before we get started. Carlene Stevens is a curator in the Division of Work and Industry at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. She oversees the museum's historical clocks and watches, robots and automaton, and acoustic sound recording technologies. She is the author of On Time, How America Learned to Live by the Clock, and other publications related to the cultural history of timekeeping and time finding. In the past decade, she has curated four exhibitions, Robots on the Road, about self-driving vehicles, Time and Navigation at the National Air and Space Museum, Hear My Voice, a display of objects and audio recovered from some of the earliest sound recordings ever made, all from Alexander Graham Bell's Volta Laboratory, and most recently, Elephants and Us, Considering Extinction, currently in NMAH's Small Documents Gallery. She became involved with elephants at the Smithsonian in 2014 when she attempted to buy a marine chronometer that had been on the Beagle with Charles Darwin. I have so many questions. Welcome, Carlene. John, thank you so much for inviting me to this conversation with you. It's always a pleasure to have a conversation with you. And I think in the time since we first met, we can now range even more broadly than we could have when we first met. Uh, thank you so much, Carlene. And, and just looking at your extensive list of research, it is so broad. There are so many topics we could go into today. Ultimately, it will be focused around courts, but I'd like to begin. Let's talk about the Beagle and Charles Darwin. How did you get involved with elephants? Well, that is the question. What is a person who specializes in the history of mechanical technology doing with elephants? There was for sale a marine timekeeper that had been on the Beagle with Darwin. The Beagle was, in fact, a survey ship. There were several chronometers on the Beagle, and this one was coming up for sale. It was coming up for sale just at the moment that the Obama administration cracked down on the ivory market. The box of the chronometer had a circle of ivory. I think it said number two. And the Smithsonian's customs broker told me at the very beginning of my efforts to buy this. And at the Smithsonian, that's a big deal. We have to practically write a book about why we have to spend money. The Smithsonian customs broker told me at the very beginning of my efforts that I would not be allowed to import it from Britain, where the auction was. I was determined to get it, and we, we should have it. It's something that is important in the history of science, in the history of technology, in the history of horology. And so I went through all the steps that one would have to do to bid. And at the last minute, I pulled out. There were some interesting side avenues because the auction house really wanted me to bid and offered to take 
the ivory plaque off and hold it for some time in the future when I might be able to have it. That struck me as vandalism. Um, and so I didn't go that route. I, I wasn't that desperate. But it got me into a circle of people at the Smithsonian. I let it be known what happened uh, up through the chain of the hierarchy. And it turns out the Smithsonian is one of those places where we take care of elephants. We care about the conservation of elephants. And we have vast resources to document ivory as a cultural manifestation of material culture. So that's how I got involved with elephants. And one thing led to another, and so we did an exhibition right as the pandemic started. So probably no one saw it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is an unbelievable way that your world opens these new doors for you. We see it in horology all the time. All of a sudden, you're talking about physics or mechanical engineering, and the quartz question really just opens up so many doors. But I have never heard horology going down the road of elephant research. It was interesting. When I was at auction, whenever we had tortoiseshell or any ivory, we'd have to bring in specialists from the, the Museum of Natural History to identify it. And same with butterfly wings and coral. There's all these endangered species that uh, are part of the world of horology that send you down these rabbit holes. It's fascinating. And it's wonderful to be able, for me, uh, to learn these new things. That Just as you're saying, um, you had to pop down the rabbit holes for all of these materials. I suspect you and I are the kind of people who just have to learn something new every day. You're right. The horology opens that door. And that's what's so much fun is not only learning, but meeting amazing people along the path. People equally as obsessed about our areas of specialization as they are about these very specific uh, things in just the world of academia. It's, it makes it so much fun. <laughs> but you wear many, many hats. Looking at your official bio, history of science and technology, the cultural history of time, history of robots and automaton, as well as the history of acoustic recorded sound. Before we get on with the formal part of the interview, I have to ask you about Alexander Graham Bell. Oh, okay. Because I understand you might have heard some things before anyone else has, at least uh, in, in recent times. Can you tell us some stories about the recordings that you uh, discovered? Well, the Smithsonian had a very long-standing relationship with Alexander Graham Bell. He lived in Washington, D.C., he was a Smithsonian regent. The regents are the governing body of the Smithsonian. He was very interested in adding to the collection. And long after he closed up his sound laboratories in Washington, he donated the leftovers from the labs to the museum. And to back up just a little bit, when Bell won a very lucrative prize from the French government for patenting the telephone. He used the money, which was about $10,000 worth much more today, to set up a sound laboratory to investigate sound in all of its aspects. His father-in-law was an investor in Thomas Edison's newest 
venture, the phonograph. And it wasn't very good. It recorded on tinfoil. You could play back maybe once or twice, and then the tinfoil gave way. That was the recording medium. So the father-in-law asked Alexander Graham Bell, can't you do something? Can't you improve on this? And so that's what the first endeavors in the lab undertook. Bell had, just like he had Watson in Boston, he had Charles Sumner Tainter in Washington, D.C., who did most of the work, actually. And they did this blanket experimentation, trying everything. And it's really Bell and Sumner Tainter and Chichester Bell, Alexander Graham Bell's cousin, who perfect a wax recording and a machine to play it on. And they did both discs and cylinders. Although Edison gets the credit for cylinder records, he commercialized them in ways that we remember more so than the Bell Gang. But we have these earliest experiments in the museum. We have what was at the time the only known recording of Alexander Graham Bell's voice. Now we know there are more. And we just got a big grant to recover more sound. So Right now, we have about a dozen of these early recordings, and they're a total of about 300. So we hope we hear more good things. This leads to a question that uh, I didn't give you the draft of this question because I want to surprise you with one. Okay, that's fine. What is your day like? (laughs) Just even speaking to you for a few minutes today, our listeners are going to understand that you have such diverse interests and area of expertise. What's it like during the day of Carlene Stevens? That's a hard one to answer because I do have to range over so many different subjects. The pandemic, of course, has changed everything. And I mostly sit at my computer answering emails, uh, endless questions about all of this stuff from outsiders and insiders. And most people ask, how on earth are Clocks and watches, typewriters and automatons, locks and keys, and the sound recordings. How is that all related? I mean, that was the collection responsibility that I was given many years ago. And the way that the Smithsonian dealt with those subjects was very taxonomic, almost like natural history, that machines have a taxonomy just the way elephants and plants and birds, all of that can be arranged hierarchically. And so those technologies that I just rattled off were all considered light machinery. They were part of the larger subject of engineering, where there was heavy machinery and machine tools and hand tools. So they all came into the Smithsonian and then into the what was then called the Museum of History and Technology together. That was the section of light machinery. And now, of course, we, we look at all of this differently. There are many more people stories in the telling of the history of these technologies. In your horological adventures, did you ever meet Seth Atwood and visit the Rockford Time Museum? 
I did have the pleasure to meet Seth Atwood and Will Andrews at the time the museum was set up in uh, Rockford. Yes, that was great. That was very interesting. That was such an amazing time. Uh, I'm, I'm still sad that collection has, has been broken up. Although I was at Sotheby's at the time, it was great commercially. Horologically, it was, it's very sad when you see a collection dispersed around the world in such a way. Right, right. It was very thoughtfully gathered yes. in the first place. And in my mind, it took me by surprise. Sad, I don't know. The collectors of the world love these opportunities, don't they? I mean, the dispersal of the collection means the whole cycle starts again. It takes decades to put a collection together. And then within a matter of hours, you see these works of art spread globally. Thus, the cycle begins again. I never thought of the natural history connection to that, too. But it's, uh, yeah, that's the story of life. I, I guess. <laughs> right. Circular. So today we're going to divide the interview into to two parts. Uh, the first, we're going to uh, go back 20 years. I want to talk a bit about your book, On Time, and uh, discuss uh, Americans' concepts of, of time and eventually public time. And then we're going to segue to the second part, which is more focused on courts and your research on the, the history of courts, watches, and clocks. And uh, what brought us together, again, for this conversation is the fact that we've had this exhibition focused on these Patek Philippe electronic clocks. And I've been absolutely shocked by how well they are received by not collectors, but people just very curious about what timekeeping was like in, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, the most cutting-edge technology, kind of this retro technology, and how people reacted to it. And here in the States, I found that a lot of young Americans, male and female, came to the exhibition, and they connected with it in a way that I'd never imagined. I'm not in the museum world, so I'm not a curator like you are by any means. But we had the pleasure to be curators this summer and have people come and tour, learn, engage, challenge, and discuss. And it's completely challenged the way I look at the development of quartz technology. I even think the quartz revolution might be the wrong word. And I want to dig into that with you in, in part two. All right, let's go back to, uh, to on time, how America has learned to live by the clock. This book really challenged me, the way I look at time personally. But also, you went back century by century in the American experience of how perception of time has changed. First, why did you write this book? The book is based on an exhibition. And one of the real pleasures for me is sharing the collections at the museum and research with the public. And the way to do that at the time that all of that was happening was through exhibition. I, I worked long and hard to get a timekeeping exhibit on the floor. We had one. We had a very early address to the history of timekeeping on the floor when the museum opened to the public in 1964. The transition in the way we deal with objects in the museum was a move away from the taxonomic treatment of machines. First there was this, then there was that. Uh, this one was better, this one was worse. 
this one was related, this one was unrelated. We moved away from that to tell people stories, to tell the kind of story that puts that technology in American history. And frankly, it was a, a set of stories not for specialists. If you have a set of clocks with minimal labels on the floor or a display of watches um, with minimal labels on display, mostly it's specialists who can appreciate the breadth and depth of what's there. Um, ordinary people who don't think they know anything about clocks and watches might just pass by the opening. So uh, that's where the, the exhibition came from. And that's where the book came from. It was directly out of that exhibition. So it's a very odd book. It tells the exhibition story. It shows some of the highlights of what we had on display. Um, and then there's this academic through line about how Americans learn to live by clock time. There, there were, and there still are, different experiences of time, not only what the clock says. And that, that was an effort, the exhibition and the book are efforts to say how they interweave. The book does that very well by looking at the American agrarian developments hand in hand with technology, in addition to the industrial revolution and how people perceive time in this country. I think uh, famously Benjamin Franklin said, remember that time is money, which is a theme that goes throughout that book. What makes Americans unique in their perception of time? Well, that's a really interesting question because it it, it obviously changed. The American perception of time changes over time. And if we hadn't just gone through the pandemic, the answer would probably be we committed to capitalism. I mean, we really did. We, we shifted from uh, an agrarian society that was held um, pretty closely to seasonal activities to an industrial society. Our food changed. We can have frozen foods any time of the year rather than strawberries when they're only in season. Uh, so we de-seasonalized. We made the clock a very important factor in how we measure everything. And we saw this powerfully disrupted during the pandemic. And there are any number of, of people writing about the experience of time during the pandemic where all of our schedules are overthrown. It's a very complicated question to answer. I'll ask you a question. I was thinking about this the other day. If you're five minutes late for a Zoom meeting or you're five minutes late for an in-person meeting, which is more annoying to you? Oh, oh, I think the Zoom meeting is probably more because people start pretty much on time. Yes. I, I really think that the pandemic and, and moving everything online has changed our perception of time, even with meetings and, right. and connecting with other human beings. And I was thinking about that because, yeah, 30 seconds can be a long time or it could be a short amount of time. It really just depends. 
there is a whole lot less vamping I've experienced with the Zoom calls. People are less likely to sit there and chit-chat waiting for the latecomers. Things just have a tendency to start. Although that may vary, you know, office culture to office culture. I don't know. Uh, what what was your experience there? I, it's, I was thinking about that in reviewing your book because you discuss time machines in a way that really surprised me because I never thought of a car as a time machine, the phone as a time machine, the phonograph, lighting, even movies. Yet these are all time machines. And, and going back to um, using Zoom, it's, it's another form of, of a time machine. And, and this is where technology and time intersect, and which is very much what your book is, is about. There's so many more things than clocks and watches that influence the way we experience time. It's probably a fault of the English language that time is the word we use to describe so many ways that we move through a, a day or a week or a calendar set of years. It's a very fluid concept. And trying to pin it down is not always easy. Sometimes it is. Sometimes people are very explicit about how they're experiencing time and what the role of their timekeepers is in that experience. But a lot of times people don't express how they're feeling about their clock. The alarm clock gets a really bad reputation. The clocks are now so commonplace, it's really hard to find explicit, researchable material. I think you pinned down the concept brilliantly with a quote in your book to kick off a chapter from the most unexpected source imaginable. And that's the slogan of the Remington typewriter company. I mean, li listen to these words. Well, you already know it. It's, it's from your book. But for our listeners, the quote is, to save time is to lengthen life, end quote. All right, I had to stop and think about that. And, and I think that is, uh, maybe it's not particularly American. I think it's just a human way that we look at our lives day to day. And uh, we're all trying to save time. And we, time is such a commodity and we're running in circles. 20 years ago, when we were doing the exhibition and the book, the phenomenon of the 24-hour society was still relatively new, new to being widespread. I think we've always had aspects of 24-hour societies, but by that I mean certain groups did not do the 9 to 5, did not stop to mark daylight and darkness. There have always been people who have had to work or activities that have had to go on around the clock. But the phenomenon of a 24-hour society where the gyms were open overnight, the supermarkets were open overnight, it was possible to, to get things, buy things that you could never buy before. If I had been able to predict what was going to happen, oh my goodness, I would have never predicted that we would need to be constantly in touch on our phones. But I think it's all part of the same never stop, overscheduled, in a hurry, racing to beat the clock. That was the catchphrase for the exhibition. How did we get this way was the question. 
As usual, you've challenged my thought on 24-hour society, and <laughs> it's true. It is Everything's 24-7. Everything's now. From your book, On Time, you quoted a 1975 New York Times article, and a mother said, quote, the same kids who can't read now because of television, who can't add now because of calculators, won't be able to tell time soon either, end quote. And, and I think this is in respect to analog versus digital time. Is, is that true? Yes. Um, the coming of digital timekeepers of all sorts, electronic digital timekeepers in the 1970s provoked some, in some people a, a real sense of loss of skills um, we see this very uh, adversarial relationship to new technologies in our country. Um, there are the early adopters who love, 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 whatever it is that's new and rare and exciting. And then there are those like this mother who was quoted in the New York Times who fear that the change is going to take away what they think are essential features of their life. In this case, it's skills. We see this today with all the things that GPS brings um, in terms of location. Uh, when was the last time you used a map? When was the last time you were able to read a map? I don't mean you personally, but um, we're, we are, according to some experts, losing our ability to find our way uh, because we're relying so heavily on GPS. So what do, we, what do we lose? What do we gain in these technology shifts? It's always a debatable uh, set of circumstances. That leads to my final philosophical question before we dive <laughs> into courts. In your opinion, has technology made us less human? I would relate that answer to the history of automatons, which are basically clockwork. And there is an enduring inquiry about automatons. Uh, scholars, uh, collectors like automatons because they're awe-inspiring. How does it work? What makes it go? And then to dig more deeply, what do they say? What do automatons say about our humanity? Are we machines? Are we just machines? Are we imitating humans with our automatons? Are we replacing humans with automated factories, robots? All of those questions in some ways are unanswerable. They are really interesting questions to ask. The related topics should be prompting caution on our part because we don't necessarily have to go down every technical road. I think it's an elegant answer, and it's it's a very, very interesting question. But yeah, uh, right, right, right. We're not right. going to be able to answer that today within the confines of a collectability podcast. But your answer definitely provoked our thinking. 
right. In your free time, <laughs> you've been working on a manuscript now, I understand, for quite some time on the history of electronic wristwatches with a particular focus on cords. Can you tell us what you're up to and what you are researching specifically? Thanks for asking me about that book. And I have the pages of the draft spread out around me as we're talking here. The title tentatively is Reinventing the Wristwatch from Dick Tracy to the Smartwatch. Like everything else in my life at the museum, it started as a collecting project. In the 1980s, I'm sorry, I do go back that far. Um, uh, in the 1980s, I noticed we did not have a single electronic watch in the collection. We had a very nice collection of early Hamilton electrics, including prototypes. We had astonishing gifts from Boulevard to document the invention of the Accutron, including one of Max Hetzel's prototypes. But if you looked at our collection, you would have thought horology devoted to wristwatches stopped in 1960, period. So 25 years later, I thought, well, I better do something about this. I made an effort to study quartz watches and decide what we should have. It became clear that I needed to study the components. I needed to study the development of batteries. I needed to study the development of integrated circuits. I needed to discover more about the quartz elements themselves that go into wristwatches. And then, oh my gosh, there was the whole display business of liquid crystal displays, LED displays, light-emitting diode displays. And talk about rabbit holes. I mean, this, this um, was a huge subject. So that's where it started. We did end up collecting some things for the museum, um, including oral histories with some of the pioneers. And it struck me at the time that if only there had been audio capability at the moment when the mechanical clock was invented or the mechanical watch or even the the electric clock. I mean, we know a little bit more about electric clocks, but um, we would know exactly who and where, but we don't. But in the case of the electronic watches, we do know. We, we can name names of who invented what. And that's extraordinary in the history of horology. Um, so uh, I've been trying to do justice to this story now, trying to write it down. We have a center for the study of in invention and innovation, Lemelson Center for the Study of Invention and Innovation. And they were very generous to this project about the history of the quartz watch. In the late 1990s, when there was practically nothing on the internet, they funded a website where we could report out what we had found. In 1997, when there was almost nothing on the internet, we laid out the story. And the internet became a research device because people would read that, unbelievably. People would read about the quartz watch. And we, we heard from still more inventors. 
the, the children of the inventors back in the early 60s and the early 70s got in touch and said, my dad had something to do with that. Would you like to talk to him? And so it was um, an amazing experience to meet these people, to talk to them, to find out the internet could be a research tool. And that, that's um, one of the reasons it took so long to get the story into book form. The other reason is because I am a terrible procrastinator. And <laughs> a third reason is because I do wear many hats um, and I have a lot to do. But, but uh, I'm, I'm getting close to the end now, I hope. Um, and it should see the light of day. No, we can't wait to read your research. <laughs> no pressure to finish uh, too soon. Yeah, Take your time because there's so much information out there. And that's just one thing we've learned. I, with the, with our uh, Patek Philippe exhibition, we literally looked at life or the court's question through a Patek Philippe perspective. And we've realized, especially speaking to you, that it's a much bigger world out there. The Patek Philippe story specifically from 1948 when they started their electronics division, it ended in the early 1990s when Patek Philippe closed their electronics division. So it's interesting reading what you have written and some other very interesting online resources, which we'll talk about momentarily. The court story goes much, much further back. It goes back to 1927. Uh, arguably even earlier, but can you tell us about um, Warren Harrison's first court's clock from 1927 that he put together while um, working for Bell Telephone Labs? There is a very interesting prehistory to quartz clocks in the need to control frequency, uh, electronic frequencies, for communication, radio, telephone. And at uh, Bell Labs in New York, Warren Marison and uh, his uh, boss, basically, uh, worked on a device to control frequency for, well, as you imagine, AT&T is deeply into telephone uh, and, and other forms of communication. It was a um, a research project with very practical application. And their first effort was, if not the size of a room, almost, it, it, in photographs of the equipment, it's uh, equipment that uses enormous vacuum tubes. Uh, there, There is a system and then they employ an existing clock to show the time. And from that, there are others who start experimenting, not so much with miniaturizing, but with using quartz as the vibrating unit to subdivide frequency to tell time. That's, that's basically what the course is doing. And the electronics is what has to do that subdivision. Now, that technology was initially developed in America in the 1920s. Is that fair to say? 
Yes, although there were the the Americans at AT and T and labs like AT and T were doing this kind of research, but there were efforts in Europe as well. And um, one of the outcomes of this kind of research is that companies are set up to produce what eventually become quartz clocks. The Germans especially are are doing this kind of research. The outcome is that by the late 1930s, there are enough of these devices around that astronomical observatories can use them to improve on their very best mechanical clocks. Pretty much these quartz timekeepers outdo the mechanical clocks by a lot. That They're able to subdivide the second much farther than any mechanical clock can. And with the introduction of the distribution of time through radio frequency, is that part of the American story? We talk about the big observatories in Europe, but can you inform us about the observatories or equivalents in America? Well, I think there are two parts to that. One is there is a very strong international community among astronomers. And so when observatories in the United States start experimenting with quartz clocks, especially the national, the national efforts like uh, the, the U.S. Naval Observatory in Washington, D.C., the National Bureau of Standards, responsible for radio technology in the United States. We don't have a single national observatory the way many of the countries in Europe do. But they, they're all in communication with observatories around the world. So if the Americans are experimenting with quartz clocks, the British are experimenting with quartz clocks, the Germans are experimenting. And the logical place for these extremely rare timepieces is in those observatories or the national laboratories that deal with standards. What uh, surprises me from what you're sharing with us today is that quartz technology was tied from the very beginning to major communications companies. If it wasn't for AT&T, Bell Labs, there would not be the quartz technology surfacing in the early 20th century. And where I'm going to take this is to more modern cryptography and Cold War era wiretapping devices, which Patek Philippe and others made. It seems to me that communication and time have truly developed hand in hand. And arguably today, the same thing is true. The whole crypto world is fundamentally based on time and speed. And it's, right. it's interesting, this, um, I would just say this, uh, this DNA throughout history, that time is never independent. And uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm intrigued by that. So any, any commentary on that thought of how um, we talk about quartz watch, the humble quartz watch, and we, we really don't give it the respect it deserves because we don't know its history. And I think for the first time you are sharing the history with your new book coming out soon, <laughs> for the first time, 
we're just we're having conversations about the the importance of courts in the development of humanity. And uh, as a side note, I learned that quartz is the second most common mineral on Earth after feldspar. <laughs> yeah, right. 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 That, that's intriguing. Something so common is so precious to us. Right. I'd like to ask you something specific about the 1964 World's Fair. Oh, okay. So this is a topic that is near and dear to Patek Philippe collector's heart, but also just in the American story. Tell us about the importance, please, of the 1964 World's Fair kind of on a, on a global scale. And second, the importance of the timekeeping that was presented and shared during that fair. Like everything else, World's Fairs have a history. And the idea that a single nation would hold an event for the world, invite other nations to bring their best to that fair to show it off to visitors, and have millions of people show up to see those things. That's been a feature of big cities, probably since the medieval days, these fairs, these markets, but more recently, uh, beginning in the 19th century, these were colossal events. And the idea that you would bring your best to uh, the World's Fair to show off and to, well, to sell the ideas of behind them uh, caught on and continues. The idea that was behind the World's Fair in 1964 was a projection of the future. The 1939 World's Fair in New York did the same thing. There was usually a theme for these fairs. And in the case of 1964, it was very definitely, let's project the future. So the Swiss watchmaking industry was integrated into the fair in two ways, as far as I know. The equivalent of street clocks around the grounds of the fair provided time of day to visitors. And they were all synchronized to a system in the Swiss pavilion that featured a time display and also the distribution equipment. It was the epitome of Swiss high-tech time of day and distribution system and coordination with time distributed from observatories. The idea that the observatory was the source of the most precise time goes back to determining time from the movement of the Earth in, in the galaxy. And the observatory is the spot where that happened. So my uh, astonishment when I encountered a photograph of this time display recently centers on the digital display that Patek Philippe had in the case for all the visitors to see. There were, of course, their high-end time distribution devices, which looked kind of like file cabinets to the uninitiated, but this digital display was astonishing for the time period. There were very few small digital displays at that time. Big bank clocks, yes. Big bank numbers, time of day, yes. So this digital display tells me that 
Patek Philippe in this case was looking forward. The press release for the display described this digital display as futuristic, going back to the theme of the fair. It was astonishing. You generously shared with me that image and, and my eyes just popped out because I never saw it before. An image from 1964, the World's Fair, the, the time, the Swiss Time Center. And this was their display window where the public would walk by and just see this wide array of Patek Philippe electronic master clocks. It was a beautiful image and, and we'll share it on our site so people can, can see it because it just showed how futuristic this concept was of how to display and distribute time. Yet you also kindly shared with me the press release from the 1964, uh, the, the Swiss Time Center press release. And it said something that absolutely intrigued me. I always thought it was only a Patek Philippe story, but like, like always, there's more to the story. The press release stated, the instruments have been developed and assembled in Switzerland by three leading firms. A Bosch SA, a producer of movements and parts for the quality watch industry, as it's described. Number two, Patek Philippe, the master manufacturer of watches and high-precision electronic devices. And third, Favag SA, makers of electric clocks and industrial timing systems. So this wasn't just a Patek Philippe story. This was a, a Swiss industry story. And like you said, they were buying parts from America. There was, there's connections that we're still making as we connect the dots of how these various companies worked um, globally. But uh, the propaganda message from the Swiss government at that time was that, uh, I'm taking a quote, the nation that times the world, end quote. So the Swiss wanted to let the world know that they were the place to buy a watch or a clock, which is a message we still hear from them today. Um, but that, uh, that dovetails to my next question. It's not just a European story. There's Japan. And they were very much at the forefront of the development of quartz technology. And your research, have you gone deep into the world of um, Japanese quartz technology? Yes, it's part of the uh, story of the wristwatch. The Japanese emerged from World War II very much in need of rebuilding on every level. And the watch business, the watch industry in the country received encouragement from the government to rebuild. And within the industry, they thought, well, we want to be a global power. We don't want to just supply watches to the Japanese uh, domestic market. So uh, what, what, what better goal, what higher goal could there be than to try to be better than the Swiss watch industry. Um, so they reverse engineered a lot of the mechanical watches, improved their mechanical watches, and clearly knew about quartz technology uh, on the large scale that was going on uh, in the United States, in, in Switzerland. And so one of the watch companies, Seiko, built a quartz unit for, again, for communications, for radio in the late 50s. And 
uh, it's not a straight line, but then started the process of miniaturizing. And that's a very difficult process. It's one thing to have a file cabinet sized unit with tubes, you know, four inches high, a completely different volume fits on a wrist. And so um, they decided, the, the Seiko decided to take on the Swiss watch industry at the Neuchâtel observatory trials because that's where you demonstrate your your finest work in that world and uh they started they started there with mechanical watches in those uh trials and then gradually introduced smaller quartz clocks and eventually quartz wristwatches but those were all um competition pieces it's almost like the concept cars you see in the car shows they're really not meant to go on the road. They're really not meant to operate. They're really just to demonstrate where technology is at a particular moment in time. But in the end, I think much to the surprise of the, the world, Seiko had the first commercially available quartz watch on the market in late 1969. Uh, it's so it's so early to have that technology on the wrist, and it wasn't inexpensive at that time too. The Swiss, of course, came out with the Beta Twenty One with their group of companies involved, including uh, Patek Philippe. But the Japanese, frankly, miniaturized and lowered the price faster than the Swiss industry could, which is just such an interesting storyline. Um, and when we think of the the Quartz Revolution, that's those early years of 1970, uh, 1969, 1972 uh, come to to mind. But at the same time, you have the master clock storyline. Uh, and I'm curious, was Seiko also making master clocks during that period of time? Or were they I don't focused? know the answer to that. I, okay. I don't know. Um, it, it didn't seem to be their specialty, but I, I, I couldn't I couldn't really say. They're, they're focused right. on the mass market, which was, frankly, the better bet, yeah. <laughs> I expect. I think if, if you're aiming for global domination, um, the specialized world of quartz clocks that aren't mass produced is probably not a, a direction you want to go. From a business perspective, yes. Right. I think the mass market won right. in, in the end. Let's talk a little bit about Germany. You mentioned earlier, like the German develop, development of quartz technology was very important. And I understand about 15 years ago, you attended and participated. Was it a symposium on quartz technology in Germany? Yeah, right. Do you recall what some of the key messages taken from that symposium were? And can you comment on the German engineering perspective of the quartz question? The Germans? made commercial success of small quartz clock. They're known in the same way that the various countries engaged in quartz watches are known. The Germans decided to go in the commercial direction of smaller quartz clocks. I think that symposium was an effort to bring the deeper historical background to that. Speaking of resources to learn more, 
about Quartz Technology, you kindly recommended a website, which I recommend all of our listeners check out. It's called leapsecond.com. When I visited leapsecond.com for the first time, I realized that the community of scholars and academics diving into the question of accurate timekeeping is it's a whole other universe that's separate from the mechanical collecting community that I'm more active in. The this leap second community dives so deep into accuracy, even pushing the limits of accuracy today and the historic march towards more accurate timepieces. I was absolutely blown away that this um, community of people exist. Can you tell us about how you learned about them? Also, I'd like to know, are there any other resources we should know about to learn more about quartz technology? I first encountered the Leap Second community in an exhibition context. We were doing a joint exhibition with the National Air and Space Museum on time and navigation. And this is, of course, where the really precise time needed historically and uh, today comes to the fore. And I think the difference, perhaps, between those who adhere to the mechanical technology and those who tend to be more interested in the electronic uh, timekeepers, it might be the difference between craft and science. Uh, craft and engineering. That's a, an unfair dichotomy in some ways, but almost all of the people who are uh, on the electronic side come from a background in engineering or physics um, and work in the field uh, or have some exposure to computers and high-tech in their lives. That's not entirely true all the time, but there's a big difference, I think, between the craft of the mechanical and the, the guts, the innards of these precision timekeepers. That's a great answer. I think that uh, what shocked me during our exhibition most was seeing some of these computer engineers, electronical engineers, looking at 1960s circuits and appreciating the aesthetic and the workmanship, the handmade elements of this, it's almost an analog electronics. They look at a vacuum tube and it takes their breath away in the same way that a traditional mechanical collector might look at a tourbillon. And it was very eye-opening for me to see there's a community of individuals who are equally as obsessed, equally excited, equally motivated to acquire information and collect electronic devices. It's, this, it's almost a parallel universe for, for me to see someone that comes from the, uh, the traditional watchmaking mechanical world. And it, you just outlined it brilliantly. Never heard that said before. So. <laughs> One of the other differences between the mechanical and the electronic is that we have a tendency to cover up the electronic. It's not obvious what's behind any of the metal on the outside or the, the putty-colored box 
And it doesn't take much to get to the insides of a mechanical watch. And you pop a cover or take it apart more easily, perhaps. Now I'm just spinning this, but it, it seems to me that you're describing a group of people who came and appreciated your display who could see the beauty in what you were showing. They were able to get beyond the facade, which is not giving very much hint of what's inside, um, and appreciate what went into it. Hand-drawn circuit boards are something I never had appreciation for because I didn't know they existed. And the more that I've learned about the history of electrical engineering and uh, and timekeeping in particular, I've personally learned to appreciate electronics in a way I never did before because I'm programmed to think they're all disposable. And the rediscovery of this part of the horological story so exciting. And I think a lot more people are learning about it and excited about it. And I think with what the work that you're doing and with your, your book, I think more and more people will um, discover this part of horology for the first time. And the simple quartz watch unlocks so much more than uh, we give it credit for. There is a book called electrifying the wristwatch and i think it's aimed mostly at collectors it was first written in german and there is now an english edition of it and i i don't want people to think that i am the first one to trod this path there there is a group of very active collectors and um i'm probably telling the story in a way that they won't especially react well to but who knows we'll see well the beauty of it is we could give them the platform to share their story so yeah. we, we want to learn more and and i hope people comment and contact us and uh and and help educate because this is what this is all about this is a very understudied part of the horological storyline and right. I think now in the year 2022, it's, it's time to tell the story, learn more about it. And uh, I, I could just imagine that there will be in the future more exhibitions and engagement and symposiums discussing the, the quartz question beyond the simple storyline is quartz destroyed mechanical, which has been told over and over uh, again. Right, There's right. so much more to the story. Right. Well, and w- one of the disadvantages of the, the leaving the story untold is that much of the material evidence disappears. That's the advantage of what you've done in terms of pulling those things that you've you know put on display together and putting them on display and sharing them with other people. It's harder and harder to find the material evidence of the earliest days of the invention of the court swatch it because people didn't appreciate it necessarily and just to your point of the throwaway 
disposability of all of these things. Because there was not much interest in it, not much respect for it, I think. A set of design problems equal to designing the first mechanical watch. Just electronic version of it. Shrinking the volume to fit as a wearable. And the miniaturization storyline, I think it's still being told in, in a way. <laughs> it's, it's about accuracy and miniaturization and, and the right. march forward continues. Let's talk about Einstein. Yeah. Because <laughs> all good interviews end with talking about Einstein uh, in, in specifically the, his theory of relativity. The, the Haplick-Keating experiments in 1971, famously, there's two gentlemen that uh, flew around the world with first-class tickets sitting next to their Hewlett-Packard clocks that happened to have dials signed by Patek Philippe. This arguably, and it is arguably because people are debating, helped prove for the first time that Einstein was right, that the theory of relativity is true, that the faster you go through um, space, time slows down. I'm trying to uh, get into physics here a bit, but can you share your thoughts on that experiment and anything you might have learned along the way in, in researching uh, this 1971 experiment. Those devices were atomic clocks. They were cesium beam atomic clocks made by Hewlett-Packard. A cesium beam atomic clock doesn't necessarily have a display. It's a box of electronics and a tube of the element cesium, and devices inside are counting the oscillations of the cesium atom, you don't need a clock on the outside. So without having a clear memory of the photos of those clocks that I've seen, do they have a dial? Yes. Is it, ah, so that's probably the contribution of Patek Philippe, that in order to I don't know why. Identify this as a clock. It needed something that looked like a clock. Otherwise, they would have needed something fairly elaborate to, to display time. In other words, there's something in there converting the oscillations of the cesium atom into time of day. And that might be the pate Philippe part. Of it. I think we're getting to the solution here. You're absolutely right. Oh, okay. Well, I don't know that if was, I'm wrong, yeah. but you might. <laughs> now, I'm just thinking this through because I just watched a video last night, which is incredible, of the actual experiment, then getting on the plane and flying around the world clockwise and counterclockwise. And when they landed, they took the cesium clocks and plugged them into master clocks on the ground to compare the timing. You're absolutely right. It really, you can't read a, an analog timing device made by Patek Philippe and no one one thousandth of a second, but the computers can. So what they were, they did, I'm just, I'm, I'm really speaking out of, I'm, I'm guessing here is they plugged it in. They compared and contrast using computers. They found the deviation, which was I think it was a, a thousandth of a second or even, even more minuscule, but the housing and the casing and the mechanical display, just so people knew the clock was running. That was the Patek Philippe's contribution. We don't know where the clocks are today, 
but hopefully you could find one. <laughs> and if you don't, I hope we find one because I think this is a story that um, we're still learning about and it literally is where space and time intersect. This experiment was part of this astronomical observatory sharing of time around the world. It was the, uh, a very critical opportunity for the places that need the most precise time to share it. Your point about showing that the clock is operating in process, you know, in flight, it's related to the reason that a digital watch has a flashing colon. If you don't have a flashing colon between the hour and the minutes, and if it's showing seconds, you don't necessarily know it's operating, especially if it's only showing minutes. So that flashing colon was invented to say, no, 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 it's okay, it's working. That's true because you don't see sweeping seconds or subseconds. So in a, in a, with a digital display of time, you need to show it's working. This is the human, the human interface with, between the technology and the, and the user. Yeah. I never thought about that, what that colon is for. That's fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. My final question of the day. And I think we're going to have to have you back because I'm going to have a thousand more questions after oh, I well, listen to this. Next time I'll study. <laughs> <laughs> this is not a quiz. But you said something earlier today that really made me think about you as a curator for the Smithsonian. In a way, you are a collector. You're a collector of information and you're a collector of objects. Here at Collectability, we're all about collecting. And uh, we're speaking today to our collectors who mostly collect Patek Philippe timepieces. I'm curious, is there a difference in your opinion of collecting objects as a curator as there might be collecting as a private individual? Well, there are huge similarities and huge differences. Huge in both cases. I'll start with the differences. I have almost no money to collect. So that makes a huge, a huge difference. I can't make decisions about what to collect quickly because I'm in an institutional setting. Uh, and I'm just assuming that collectors do have money and collectors do, do decide things quickly. Perhaps not. Um, I don't have endless space to collect. I can't say, oh, I'll just keep collecting and build a new room on my house or whatever. I don't have networks of fellow collectors against whom I compete. I have a network of fellow museum professionals, and we try to collaborate with our collecting. Recent examples, I don't need to collect one of every robot because other institutions are doing a better job than I am collecting robots. It's different with watches because they're smaller and I still have drawers I can put watches in, but uh, robots are big. And uh, so space constraints are a reality. There are probably other things, but those are the ones right on the top of my head that are the main differences. The main similarities, private collectors and museum curators probably both do research to understand what it is 
they're collecting. Maybe maybe collectors don't do as deep research. Maybe they do. I I don't I don't know. Um, I probably shouldn't confess this, but I don't really have a collecting gene. I do it. It's my job. I like to do it, but. If I never collected anything again, I'd be okay. A real collector never stops, right? Never. It's just a, a constant, <laughs> I mean, it's, constant yeah. treasure hunt to acquire right. the unacquirable. And I think there's a profound similarity in that we all appreciate material things. That there is something in the material of our horological world that speaks to stories, that speaks to how people use time, maybe not so much, but who wore it? Why did they wear it? Who made it? Why did they decide to make it? All of these ultimately come back to stories about people. Maybe collectors don't start there, but I think many end up there. Oh, I think that that's a beautiful answer. I, it's funny because just listening to you, Ultimately, collectors, it, it's about space, it's about time, it's about money, of course it's about money, and it all comes down to the stories. And that reminds me, before we wrap up, I wanna ask you about a specific Patek Philippe in the Smithsonian collection, but it's not under your umbrella, it's under the Air and Space Museum, and that is a Patek Philippe rectangular watch donated by Charles Lindbergh to the Smithsonian which is still part of their collection after all of these years. Can you comment on that watch? I don't know the watch by sight. I mean, I, I've seen the photograph. I, I haven't stood in front of it, so to speak. But I can tell you a little bit about Lindbergh's relationship to watches, including that one. Lindbergh learned to navigate after his famous flight. He went to school, so to speak, because he got lost in the Caribbean, flying over the Caribbean. And he thought, this is really dangerous. I'm, I'm going to have to do better. So there was a very famous navigation teacher at the Naval Academy in Annapolis. And the famous navigator's name was P.V.H. Weems. One thing led to another, and both Lindbergh and Weems started designing watches to make it easier to get the hour angle, the Greenwich time, uh, as opposed to the time in flight. Those watches were manufactured, I think they initially approached Waltham and then American watches, and then Longines. And so there are watches out there designed by both of them that have these funky dials. But I think the Patek Philippe watch was just a, I don't want to say an ordinary watch, but a, a traditional standard watch that um, uh, came out after Lindbergh's famous flight. Yeah, it looked like just a, an everyday yeah. watch. Perhaps he was given it as a gift. He clearly wore it based on the images that I saw. Right. I never associated uh, Lindbergh with Patek Philippe before. So seeing that the Smithsonian has that is very exciting for the Patek Philippe universe because this is not a watch the Patek Philippe collecting community is aware of. 
So uh-huh. Uh-huh. I need uh-huh. to get down to DC to see that watch. <laughs> That's wonderful. Yes, you have to come down. <laughs> More importantly, I'd like to go down to DC to say hello to you in person. <laughs> <laughs> because this conversation has been an absolute pleasure. Well, this was a very wide ranging conversation on so many different topics. And I hope our listeners are inspired to learn more and can dive deeper into these various topics, which we've just covered a couple thousand (laughs) (laughs) because watches are a wonderful way to learn about the world around us and to connect with other people, visit museums, read books, which are two things that I think uh, we could inspire more people to do a little more of these days and, and always learn and always ask questions. And I, and I think just speaking to you today, you're always, always inquiring and you always want to learn more. It's just, there's not enough time in the day, (laughs) ultimately. (laughs) Before we wrap up, Carlene, do you have any parting thoughts? Well, John, I just really want to thank you for this opportunity to talk to you and your listeners. It's been really fun. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much, Carlene. I want to thank all of our listeners for listening to this most recent episode in our series of Collectability Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe so that you do not miss any future episodes. This is John Reardon for Collectability. Collectability.